Romans 8, 26 and 27, it reads, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I want to focus this morning on the Spirit's ministry for us as He prays for us. And I'm going to title my sermon, Help in Our Weakness. Let's pray and ask God for His help as we study. Father, we thank You, Lord. For this text and for your word, I pray that you would give us help even now as we understand our help that the Spirit gives us in our times of weakness as he prays, intercedes for us according to your will. I pray that I would speak your word, not merely my ideas, that you would open our hearts to receive your word, that this message would be a word from you to your people. Move in us, strengthen us, and encourage us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Help in our weakness. I learned something through having four babies. For all four of my babies, it was the same thing. I learned from them the importance of presence, P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E. For all four of them, and maybe some of you have babies or have had babies or have watched babies and you know what I'm talking about. For all four of them, they would have a night where they're not sleeping, only crying, And I would walk into the room, and I remember this vividly, like hundreds of times. I was trying to think of just one of my kids as an example, and the more I thought about it, I can remember this with all four of them. I walk into their room in the middle of the night, baby's crying, and I learned something, all right? This is a trick. If you ever have a baby, all right, keep this in mind. I would just put my hand on their chest, and the crying would stop. I would take my hand off and try to sneak out, and you know what happens. That's the the downside, all right? But the upside is, for just a moment, the crying would stop. You know, sometimes we just need to know that we're not alone. Sometimes we just need to know that another is present. Now, I think here is the reality. See, we, we feel often alone. We often feel like there is a lack, that we have this deep longing for some kind of deeper belonging to another. And I think we get glimpses of that in friends and family members and children and parents and spouses. But even at the end of the day, I don't know if you've ever felt alone even though you're in a crowd. Lonely even though you have someone. And if we are alone, then we are truly alone. No help here, no help 
there. Jesus, before he left this earth, in John chapter 14, looked at his disciples and he said a promise. He said to them, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. He calls the Holy Spirit his ad, uh, our advocate. He calls the Holy Spirit our comforter. And in that same breath, he said, my peace I give to you. He calls the Holy Spirit peace. My peace I give to you. Meaning, as Jesus went through his own sufferings, as Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, as Jesus died on the cross for your sins, as Jesus went to this rugged tree to take the wrath of God that you deserve, and if you're not a Christian, call out on his name, look to Christ, and know that he died for you on the cross. For all who believe, trust in him. Turn from your sins and trust in him. As he was doing that work for us on our behalf, the peace that he had in all of that, to, to see the bigger picture, to endure the cross for the joy that was set before him, to see the glory of God played out in the redemption of human beings, the peace that he had, he has given to us. That same peace. So he tells his disciples, I'm sending you this peace. Capital P, the personification of peace, the Holy Spirit of God has been given to us. Therefore, church, you don't have to be alone. I would even go so far as to say this. If you are in Christ, you are never alone. This spirit has come and has moved in and taken up residence in your life, and he's never going to leave. He's with you. Now, we've been told throughout Romans that the spirit raises us from the dead, raised to new life in Christ. The spirit's work on our behalf is that of regeneration, making us new, giving us rebirth. We've been told that the spirit fills us gives us new desires. The Spirit convicts us of our sin. Initially, as we turn from our sins, and then he confirms that Christ is the risen Savior for us as we trust in Christ. That's all the Spirit's work on our behalf. And then even as we go through our life, why is it that you can't get away with sin without feeling conviction? That's the Holy Spirit's work in your life. The Spirit moves on our behalf. The Spirit assures you that you are a Christian. The Spirit testifies to my spirit, Paul has just said in Romans 8, that I am a child of God. And then we get to verse 26 and 27, and we learn something new. What if I told you that the Holy Spirit of God prays for you? He intercedes on your behalf. This week, I've been studying these two verses, and I have been, I'm going to be honest, I've been perplexed, and I've been comforted at the same time. And I've fallen more in love with the Holy Spirit. 
I've grown in gratitude for the Holy Spirit of God. It's perplexing in the sense that we can't figure out how this works. Like, how do I experience the Spirit praying for me? Uh, what does that feel like? How, where do I see it played out? Like, the application of this is tough. Because it's not something that we can kind of see. You know, the kingdom of God is visible. In, invisible, rather. And the Spirit of God is invisibly and inaudibly praying for us. And so it's not something that we can see or apply. It's something we receive and understand. But it's also comforting, isn't it? So I hope that as we study these two verses that you too grow in love with the Holy Spirit, grow in comfort knowing that the Holy Spirit is praying for you. How does the Spirit of God not leave us alone? Let me briefly show you three ways from this text. Number one, we have the, the Spirit's help. Number two, we have the Spirit's intercession. And number three, we have the Holy Spirit's precision. Look at verse 26. Let's break it down. Verse 26, he sa it says this, likewise. He uses the word likewise because he's just been talking about the Holy Spirit. If you remember Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1 through 4, it is all to make us holy. How are we made holy? He goes on in chapter 8 to show us the heights of the Christian life as we are dwelt with the, uh, filled with the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit has moved in and taken residence in us, and then he says, you're going to suffer. But through your suffering, there's glorification. And the Spirit helps us there. The Spirit gives us hope. We talked about this last week. We have hope of glorification through the help of the Holy Spirit. Now, likewise, likewise, meaning in the same way that the Spirit helps us here, he says the Spirit helps us in another way. How does he do it? The Spirit helps us in our weakness. Now, help right here, means to bear a heavy load. Just like yesterday, as we were cleaning up 1500 Druid Hill Avenue. Imagine if it was just one of us out there cleaning up. Imagine if it was just me. I'm out there pulling everything out, trying to figure out what to do with all this stuff. I can't do it on my own. And I've got two dumpsters to fill. Help looked like a swarm of garden people coming to the building and getting the work done. To the point where we even had like, a, 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 at one point we had what do you call a line, a, 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 an assembly line, where we're passing tiles literally from the basement all the way out to the dumpster. This is help. Bearing a load that another can't do on their own. Now, we don't have a swarm of spirits. We only have one, and we only need one, because this is the Holy Spirit of God. And he comes into our life to bear a load in our weakness, to help us in our weakness. Now, question, why do we need help? You see, some folks might not feel like they need help. Some folks might be pretty self-sufficient, I don't need anything. I'm a moral person. I'm pretty strong. I'm good to go. Whereas others are needy. And they're, they're 
self-consumed with their lack of ability to do anything, and they're self-doubting. These four words, it, it, it convicts one and it encourages the other. On one hand, it, it tells the person who doesn't think they need help, you need help. You're actually not strong, you're weak. You're, you're, you're uh, limited. Your mind is not limitless, it has its limits. Your abilities are capped. You need help. But it also encourages the self-doubting. You have help. You are not helpless. You're not alone. You've got help. The Spirit helps us. The next line then defines our weakness. Why do we need help? Look at verse 26, second part. He says, for, here's the reason, we do not know what to pray for as we ought. This is our weakness. We don't know what to pray for. Now, there are some things that we do know. We do know what God has revealed. So, for instance, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7 tells us, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. This is God's word to Timothy through the Apostle Paul and ultimately to all of us. God is saying, think over what I say, and the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Now, everything there is not everything. Everything, everything is defined in that verse. In what way? He says, think over what I say. Meaning you will have, you have the ability to have understanding in everything that God has said. Are you with me? A.K.A. the Bible, what he has revealed. Meaning one of the ways that we are helped by the Holy Spirit of God is we can actually understand this book. You know, when, when somebody says, oh man, there's things in the Bible that just are never meant to be understood. Well, not if it's written in a way that it's meant to be understood. <laughs> yes, there are some things that are not meant to be understood, and they're not communicated in that way in the Bible. But if the Bible communicates something as if we should understand it, we have the ability to understand it. Well, then why do we suffer through our interpretation? It's because of our own sin and our own flesh, but it's not because... God hasn't spoken clearly. So we can know some things. We know what God has revealed. And in what he's revealed, we know something else. We know God's moral law for us. We know everything that God has morally and ethically required of us. We have the Ten Commandments. Have no other gods before me. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Observe the Sabbath. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not lie. Don't covet. We have then Jesus' kingdom teachings, his kingdom principles as he teaches what it looks like to live as a citizen of God's kingdom, the precepts and laws of God's kingdom all throughout his teachings. We have all of the instructions to the churches throughout the New Testament. So we know what God has revealed, we know what God requires of us, but there is still something that we don't know. And that is the future. We don't know 
God's secret will for the future. We don't know how it's all going to turn out. We don't know why God allows and even ordains suffering in our lives. We know it's for His glory, but we don't understand how it's all going to come together for our good and His glory. We don't know how God is going to use the bad news and turn it into good news. So there are things that we don't know about. And so we're limited. We are then, therefore, weak in our prayers. James Boyce gives some biblical examples of this. Examples of how in the Bible some of our characters who were real people of God were actually weak in their prayers because they don't know some things. So he talks through the example of Job, the first one, Job chapter 7, verse 20, 21. You don't have to turn there, but Job, if you know the story of Job, Job went through it. He lost his kids. His friends turned against him. His own wife turns against him at some point. He loses his business. He loses his health. He's covered in painful boils. Job's life is miserable. And you understand, well, we can seek to understand some of these things. Job is a mysterious book in some ways, but we we can understand that by the end of the time uh, we get to the book, by the end of the book, Job's fortune is restored, his life is restored, even more than it was, and it was all this, this, this glory to God sort of test. But in the middle of it, though, In the middle of it, Job believed that he had done something wrong. He believed that the suffering had come because God was not forgiving him. Because that that he had erred in some way. And so in Job chapter 7, Job prays to God and he prays in this way. He says, if I have sinned, what have I done to you? You who see everything we do. Why have you made me your target have I soon, uh, and I soon lie down in the dust. You will search me, but I will be no more. You see, Job prays only from what he can perceive in the moment. And so his prayer is, forgive me. Why am I such a burden to you? Well, Job doesn't know some things. He doesn't know that he is God's choice servant. He doesn't know that God's showing something to the devil through his life, through his faithfulness. He prays from only what he can perceive. Another example of this would be in 1 Kings 19.4. Elijah is running for his life, and Elijah is scared. And Elijah prays to die. He says this, I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. It's a wrong prayer. But he can only perceive, he's only praying what he can perceive in the moment. And so he's praying that God would just allow him to come home. So he doesn't have to run from his enemies anymore. And he doesn't know that God has a bigger plan to 
still use him on this earth. So our, our prayers then can be weak. Now, now, some people wish that God was like a genie. If I ask God for something, what's a genie have to do? He has to give it. I'm just thankful God's not like a genie. I'm thankful God is not like a genie. You know why? Because if God gave me everything I asked for in life, I wouldn't be where I am. I don't know the right thing to ask half the time. I can't tell you how many things I've asked of God and he didn't answer it and he did something else that was actually for my better than if he answered what I was requesting. Father knows best. He really does. And yes, he will answer every prayer request, but it's not always a yes because we pray with weakness. I'll give you an example of this. Um, if you think of our church building that we have, you know, we were initially praying a number of months ago, a year ago or so, we were praying for a warehouse on Wilson Street. I'm so glad now that God is not a genie because he would have given us the warehouse and have a $3 million project before us to try to figure out how to fix it up. You see, God had something better in mind. We, we, we pray and we ask of God, but there is a measure of weakness that is always muting our ability to pray with strength. Paul prayed, take this thorn from my flesh. He asked God three times. But Paul didn't understand God's will with that thorn. And eventually he, he realized it. It is, to, it is to cause Paul to lean into God's grace. For whatever reason, there was a thorn in his flesh, and if that thorn wasn't there, Paul would have been tempted to pride and boastfulness and not relied on the grace of God. You see, how many times in your own life have you prayed for blank? And God didn't allow blank. And as a matter of fact, in some, some senses, he's allowed suffering in its place. But now having gone through it, you can look back and say, if it wasn't for that suffering, I would not be where I am. If it wasn't for me going through that loss, if it wasn't for me going through that disease, if, if I didn't lose this individual that I so loved, then I would have never hit rock bottom and turned to Christ and leaned into his grace and mercy and grown and become the stronger individual that I now am as a result of that suffering. Look, God is not a genie. And I just want to say praise God because our minds are limitless. We have a weakness. We can't understand some things. We don't know his secret will. Now, Christian, all of this, even this passage, assumes that you're praying. It does. 
I mean, the very fact that he says we are weak in, 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 because we don't know what to ask for, it assumes that you are actually asking of God. You know why some Christians are weak in their prayer life? It's because they don't pray. Let's just let that sink in for a minute. For this to even be relevant to us, we got to ask ourselves, do I pray? The great people of, uh, of our past are prayer warriors. Frederick Douglass was a prayer warrior. John, John Bunyan, who spent most of his, uh, the majority of his ministry in jail, he said this, he who runs from God in the morning will scarcely find him the rest of the day. John Bunyan believed that we've got to turn to God first thing in the morning in prayer. And if we wake up and immediately run from God, why do you think that at some point in the day you're going to decide to turn back to him? During the Reformation, the Catholic Queen of Scotland, Mary, said this of John Knox. She said, I fear John Knox's prayers more than an army of 10,000. That guy must have prayed some powerful prayers. It's said of John Knox, who started the Presbyterian Church in Scotland, that he died literally while interceding for others. Prayer warriors. The non-praying Christian is like a fish out of water. You're still a fish. I'm not saying you're not a fish. But you're not in the water of prayer where we are to live. You see, why do I say that? Well, Christians rely on God. That's what makes us a Christian. Not through our self-sufficiency, but through reliance on God. Prayer is the active participation in this reliance. As we pray, we're coming to God saying, I need help. Now, some people say, well, what's the point of prayer? You know, if God is going to do what God is going to do, then why pray at all? Well, my Calvinist friend, you're right to be a Calvinist, but you just entered into hyper-Calvinism. If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. But some of you do, and you've got to be careful. Hyper-Calvinism is a real threat, and that is to say that God is going to do whatever God is going to do. So therefore, I'm going to sit back on my hands and do nothing. I don't need to pray for anything because God's going to do what God's going to do. That is not biblical. We've got to repent of that. Prayer actually changes things. Well, what does prayer change, though? I mean, God is going to do what God is going to do. So we don't change God's mind, per se. We're not changing His eternal plan, per se, in prayer. So how does, change, or how does, how does prayer change things? Well, first, prayer changes the natural course of events. If things keep going the way they're going to go, it's going to be this, and prayer changes things. But how do we reconcile, though, our prayer life and asking God for something, knowing that prayer actually changes something? How do we reconcile that with God's sovereign plan, with the fact that God is in control of all things and God will do what God's going to do? Well, here's how, biblically. It's because God 
has ordained prayer as the means through which his plan will, will be lived out. God has ordained your prayer life as the very means through which he is going to bring change in your life and in the life of another person. He has actually invited us into the future, the course of humanity, as we intercede on behalf of ourselves, on behalf of our our friends and family, and on behalf of the world. It's been said of Acts chapter 12 that an angel freed Peter from jail, but it was the prayer of the saints that sent the angel. Prayer changes things. Do you pray? Let me just leave you with that. Do you pray? Let's be a praying people. So the Spirit helps us because we are weak. How does he help us? Point number two. He helps us through his intercession, the Spirit's intercession. Look back at verse 26. He says, for we do not know what to pray. That's, that's our weakness. We don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes. Somebody say intercedes. The Spirit intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words intercedes, intercession. That is a word that means urging on behalf of another, to plead the case of another. Now, this tells us that the Spirit Himself is interceding for us. It doesn't, that doesn't mean that He's giving us the words to say to God as we pray, because it says that He Himself is doing the praying. He's not enabling us to pray as much as he is praying for us. It's a both and. It says, groaning, too deep for words. Does this mean that the Spirit is actually audibly groaning? No, I don't believe so. This is the third time Paul has used groaning in Romans chapter 8. We saw that creation groans last week. We saw that we groan eagerly awaiting the unveiling last week. And now he says, in the spirit groans. I think it's a play on words. The spirit doesn't audibly pray for us in a groaning fashion, but it is saying that the spirit himself is actually interceding for us on our behalf. Now listen, he knows your situation better than you do. He knows your thoughts better than you do. He is closer to you than your very thoughts. No one else might understand you. No one else might fully appreciate who you are. No one else fully knows what you need. But the Spirit of God knows you intimately in a detailed way. And this Spirit is praying for you. In my own times of despair, I don't know what to pray. And there's been many times where I just simply pray, pray, God, you know. That's one of my most common prayers, actually. Lord, you know. And in those moments, the Spirit is praying for me in a way that is powerful. Why is it powerful? Well, it goes on. 
Why is the Spirit able to help us? Verse 27, here's my third point, the Spirit's precision. Look at verse 27. It says, he who searches hearts, now that's, that's a reference to the Father. The Father searches hearts, the Father knows our disposition, our demeanor, who we are. He who searches hearts, he knows what, the mind, uh, what is the mind of the Spirit. And where does the Spirit dwell? We've already learned it, in our hearts, metaphorically speaking. It's the only way that we can describe it. He is that close to us, that He's in our hearts, in our being. And God the Father, who searches hearts, knows the Spirit is, is there, and He is one with, uh, with the Spirit's mind. Because, check it out, the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is how he intercedes. This is why it's so powerful. Because he prays every single prayer for you according to the will of God. I'm praying for you. For me, I don't know about you, but for me, those are some of the most encouraging words. When somebody really knows that I'm going through something, or knows that I'm down. I am genuinely encouraged when I hear those words, I'm praying for you. I'm genuinely encouraged when I get a text from so many of you. Well, you'll just randomly text me and say, hey, I'm, I'm praying for you today, and I believe you are. Otherwise, you wouldn't have taken the time to text me that. When somebody's praying for you, that means that, that another regenerate human being, another person who's been bought by the blood of God, who God loves and listens to and stoops down to hear that he, he condescends to them. As a father condescends to the child, says, tell me what you want. That saint is praying for you. That's huge. Now, as huge as that is, what if I told you that there is a being who knows you better than you know yourself? What if I had told you that there is a being who knows what you need, what you really need, better than you even know? He knows your thoughts. He knows your cries. He knows your doubts. He knows your discouragements. He knows your loneliness. He knows all of that. He knows your highs. He knows your lows. He knows your sin struggles. He knows where you're tempted. And what if I told you that this being is so intimately intertwined with you that the only way we can describe it is to say that he is in your heart. And what if I told you that this being has the ear of the Father in such a way that everything he prays is yes? And what if I told you that this being is so one with the Father that he is God himself? Who lives with you. How much more does that encourage you? Saints, let me, let me tell you, the Holy Spirit, probably every day, we're not told how often, but I assume every second of every minute of every day is praying for you. Saints, let that encourage you. He's able to pray in this way. Why? Because it says, the text tells us, God knows his mind and he prays according to the will of God. 
this connects us back to what we don't know. We don't know His perfect will. But He does. And the Spirit's prayer then is 100% effective every time. Now, part of the reason this gets a little confusing for us and perplexing is because the Spirit is God. And so someone might ask, well, why does the Spirit pray? If the Spirit is God, why does one, you know, as if God doesn't know something, or, you know, why does one person of the Godhead pray to another person of the Godhead? First, let me just say this. Let me take a little movement here and say it's, it's, there's a biblical precedence for this. The second person of the Trinity, classically called, Jesus Christ, prayed for the saints. He prayed for you. One member of the Godhead prayed to another. Before Jesus went to the cross, Jesus said to Peter, he said, Peter, Satan is about to sift you like wheat. Oh, how would you like to hear that, by the way? In all of your struggles, like you're already not, not feeling the way things are turning out with this whole uh, coming into Jerusalem uh, and, and all of the palms, and now it seems like things are turning against us. You, your anxiety is already on high, and Jesus says to you, Satan is going to sift you like wheat. But then he says this, and he means this to be encouraging, but I've prayed for you. Oh, man, imagine that, hearing Jesus himself say, I've prayed for you. Prayed for you in what way? He says that your, that, that your faith may not fail. And after you return, strengthen your brothers. Oh, he already knows that his prayer is going to be answered. That's why he tells him what to do after he, after he returns. Strengthen your brothers. Peter doesn't know the will of God. All of it. He doesn't know that he's about to be tempted to deny Christ, and he will deny him three times. He doesn't know the, the, the fire of hell that he is about to just get a very small taste of as he, as he sees hell come down on his Savior. He doesn't know how Satan is about to sift him like wheat. But listen, he never once lost his faith completely. Jesus' prayer was answered. His faith didn't ultimately fail. And what happened? When he returned, he strengthened his brothers. Just read the first half of Acts. It's all about Jesus' answer, or the, God's answer to Jesus' prayer. Peter strengthening his brothers. Anxiety. Look, some, some of you struggle in your prayer life due simply to anxiety, worrying about suffering, worrying about the future. And anxiety sometimes leads us to, to action, to movement, and not to prayer. Let me see if I can do something about it. Let me see if I can remedy my situation. But we're in our anxieties, we're, we're called to turn to the one who can really help us. Let me take a little anxiety detour here. Turn to Philippians chapter 4 in your Bible. In Philippians chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4, we're, we, see, we see some very famous lines here. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. Let's connect that with verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, 
by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So here we're called to do what? Not be anxious, but instead of anxiety, pray. Like talk to God. Bring these things to God. And look at verse 7. Remember what we said about peace? My peace I send you. Check it out, verse 7. Here's the promise, which, by the way, this recently hit me. The promise of verse 7 attached to the command of verse 6. Here's the promise. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Jesus. You see, here's the problem with anxiety. Is so often, you know, anxiety is about, anxiety is future-oriented. It's about suffering in the future. And anxiety itself is a form of suffering in the present, but, it, but anxiety is future-oriented. And so as we're called to not be anxious about anything, but to take it to the Lord in prayer, we're saying these future things that you don't know, you don't know how this is going to play out, you don't know what God is going to do, you just don't know. He's saying take this to the Lord in prayer and check it out. When you do, the peace of God descends upon us, and he will guard your heart and your minds. I don't know about you, but for me, when I am dealing with anxiety, it's how my heart is going to respond to the situation that is my biggest concern. Like, how am I mentally going to be able to get through this? How, 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 am I, how, how is my faith going to hold up if I face the, this, this thing that I'm so concerned about? Saints, you have a promise. God's peace that passes understanding will guard your heart and your mind. Now, tying this back into our passage in Romans 8, this is what we're seeing. Look at verse 28. He says, it connects well. All things work together for good to them who love God and are called according to His purpose. We're going to study that more next week. But what he's saying is this, is every single thing that you go through has been bathed in prayer by the Holy Spirit, a yes from the Father, and therefore it all is for your good. And no matter what you face, He is going to protect your hearts and minds through the Spirit's prayer life to get you through it. So how might we live? Let me give you three applications and we're done. Number one, this inspires us to prayer, doesn't it? I hope, I hope that even just studying these two verses has inspired you to be a person of prayer. I've been having some fundraising meetings lately for our building, and I've noticed that as I'm going into this meeting, I have just a little touch of anxiety, just a touch. I don't generally struggle with meetings, but there's just a touch of like, man, I hope I communicate this well. I hope I communicate this need well. I hope my words come out. Do you guys know what that feels like when you're going to go into a meeting where you, you're, you know that you want to ask somebody something or you've got to talk about something and you're just like, there's a, a sense of like, you've, I've got to measure my words. I've got to really get my thoughts together. I've got to, you know, maybe write down some notes and just be very careful how I do this because I, I don't want to say something that is taken the wrong way. 19th century poet, on her own experience with prayer, wrote this, and I love it. She says, oh, the comfort, 
the inexpressible comfort of feeling safe with a person, having neither to weigh thoughts nor measure words, but pouring them all right out, just as they are, chaff and grain together, certain that a faithful hand will take them and sift them, keep what is worth keeping, and with the breath of kindness blow the rest away. I resonate with that as we talk about prayer. You don't have to measure your words with God. You just be honest, like gut-wrenching, honest with God. And you let your words flow as they are. And the Spirit, while you're doing that, is praying for you. He's praying for you. This inspires us to a greater prayer life. It also inspires us not just to pray about our own needs, but to pray for others as well. Meaning, if you could see, if you could see the the, the Holy Spirit constantly intercessing on behalf of Johnson, praying for Johnson, praying for Nisaiah, praying for Anna, you could see the Spirit praying constantly for these individuals Wouldn't you pray for them as well? Like if the Spirit loves this person to such a degree that the Spirit is praying for them, shouldn't that lead us to join in the Spirit's work and to intercede for them on on their behalf as well? Maybe somebody annoys you. Maybe somebody just gets on your nerves. No points in. What if you prayed for them? What if you recognize that even the person that you don't like, blood-bought by Jesus Christ, a citizen of heaven, has the Holy Spirit of God that loves them to such a degree that he prays for them? Wouldn't that lead you away from animosity and more toward intercession? Let's pray. Secondly, this inspires us to holiness. We're not told exactly what the Spirit prays for, but we can assume that a good portion of it is holiness. He knows where you're tempted. He knows where you're weak. And when you are tempted to run from God, when you're tempted to spiritual laziness, when, when, when you're tempted to, excuse me, when you're tempted to escape your, your problems through drug use or through alcoholism, when, you, when you're tempted towards sexual immorality. Know that the Spirit is praying for you, and may this inspire you to holiness. Thirdly, it inspires us to courage. William Carey was a person who had simply ordinary daily faithfulness before God. He once said of his life, I can plod. Plod. Meaning, I'm not going to do anything big overnight, I can't do great things overnight, but I can plod. I can every day try to do the right thing. So over time, he plodded his way through the Greek and Hebrew languages and learned uh, how to read the Bible in its original text. He organized a missionary, uh, a missionary society in, in uh, uh, 1792. A year later, Carrie and his three boys and wife got on a ship to India and moved to India for the rest of their lives to be missionaries to those that were unreached. After seven years of plotting, there was no convert. 
after seven years, he had his first convert baptized in the year eight, uh, 1800. Carey translated the Bible over time into the Bengali language. He began then a missionary movement that came after him. He sought and saw social reform, outlawed infanticide, which is the killing of babies. He outlawed widow burning. He outlawed assisted suicide. But here's what I want to say. In Carey's sermon that, that he preached as, as they were beginning this missionary society, he said this famously, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Listen, saint, what are you scared of? What holds you back? What anxieties are keeping you from attempting great things for God? I want you to know this, that you have the Holy Spirit praying for you. And this motivates us away from a life of fear to a life of great courage where we attempt great things for God and we expect great things from God. And this is biblical. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21 says this, Now to him who is able to do far more than all that we ask or think, according to what? The power that is at work within us. You see the connection there? He's praying for us. The power at work within us and Therefore, God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask or imagine to Him be the glory in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Church, there are many things about tomorrow that I don't understand, but I know who holds tomorrow, and I know who holds my hand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this encouraging, these encouraging two verses that we might know that the Holy Spirit, your Spirit, is praying for us, interceding on, on our behalf. God, may this encourage us to greater prayer, may this encourage us to greater holiness, and may this encourage us to courage. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.